The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Hosea chapter 1 might seem an unusual or maybe even inappropriate text to love and, and read on a Sunday morning. We studied the book of Hosea as a senior high Bible study this past summer, and I remember distinctly we read through Hosea chapter 1 and there was silence in the room for a few seconds, and one student said, I, I just feel dirty reading this passage, and another one said, how is this Okay. But Dr. Boyce, the famous preacher from Philadelphia, calls this the second greatest story in the Bible, taking backseat only to the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ himself. Because this story reveals the depth and the nature of God's love for his people in a unique and a powerful way. So would you join me as we read Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel and the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. And when she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, And they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful to you that you sent your word. You sent your word first to the prophet Hosea, and now you have sent this word to us, your people, as well. Shape our hearts. Give us a better understanding of who you are as our God and our Savior. 
We pray this through Christ. Amen. So I was thinking this week about some of the scariest questions that, as a husband or wife, you could ask your spouse. I thought one of the scariest questions you could ask would have to be, so what is it like being married to me? I don't know what responses you would expect. I remember one popular Christian speaker shared a story from early in his marriage in some rocky days. He said to his wife this question, what is it like being married to me? And she said, well, let me think about it. And she came back six months later and said, I think I'm ready to tell you what it's like being married to you. You know, wow, she must come up with something really great over six months. And she said to him something like, You know, it's illegal for me to kill you. And God says I can't divorce you. But it would be far easier to be dead than stay married to you. Ouch. Another popular Christian author said this. He said, you know, early in our marriage, my wife was pointing out one of my many major character flaws. And in my frustration, I said to her, look. 95% of the men or the women in our church would love to be married to a guy like me. And she said, Well, I'm in the 5%. I think it's, uh, it's difficult to honestly and objectively consider ourselves and our sin and what we're actually like. It's difficult to get an accurate perspective from someone else's point of view of who we are as a person. And when it comes to our relationship with God, I think sometimes it's easy for us to think, look, you know, God obviously knows everything about us. He's a God of of mercy and and compassion. He knows his people make mistakes. He knew what he was getting into when he wanted us to be his people. So, you know, it's it's not really a big deal for him when we sin. He, He knows all of this. And I think we can casually maybe not consider what it's like from God's perspective to love a sinful people. But in Hosea... Hosea, God has chosen to give us a crystal clear picture of what it is like from His perspective to love a sinful people. And the picture is jarring from the very first words. Go, take a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for this land has committed great whoredom by forsaking me. I want you to put yourselves in Hosea's shoes for a minute. Hosea is not an old seasoned prophet who's been getting uh, words from the Lord for his whole life. This is the first word that the Lord has spoken to him. This is the first thing the Lord says to him. And we think that Hosea was a young man. And as a young man, surely like any of us, Hosea would be looking forward to marriage. Maybe Hosea liked certain girls or admired certain girls. Maybe, maybe Hosea had a certain girl or son that, that he wondered, maybe I'd be marrying them. Or, or maybe he said, well, this is the kind of person I would like to marry. But God comes and says, Hosea, I want you to get married to a prostitute. And I want you, Hosea, to be faithful to her alone, and I want you to love her alone even though you're going to watch her and know that she's sleeping with other men around you. And this isn't a one-time failing, Hosea. Your wife is going to continue to make a habit of being in bed with other men. And, And Hosea, I want you to raise a family. And in your family, some of your children are going to be your own. And some are not. 
Some are going to be children that are born from these other men who your wife is sleeping with. But through all this, Hosea, you are going to be faithful to this woman. And I want you to love her through all of this. Can you imagine the brokenness and the pain of this relationship? Of what Hosea is going through? Hosea lived through this. And I think God is calling us to imagine what it would be like for us to be in this situation, in this marriage. It seems impossible, maybe, if you put yourself in this position and imagine what this would be like. How in the world could God call a prophet to do this? But God says to Hosea, I want you to do this because this experience is the closest thing I can give you to what I experience in loving Israel, my sinful people. And as God speaks to Hosea multiple times throughout this passage, as God gives us this picture, I think there are two things that become evident from God's Word, and I want to look at each of those this morning. First, in the beginning of this chapter, it becomes evident that despite God's great love, there are real consequences for Israel for abandoning God, the God who had called them and covenanted with them and made them His people. And the consequences of sin are stark. Look at the first part of this passage. We're told right from verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to Hosea in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and of Jeroboam. This is the second Jeroboam, king of Israel. Now, if you were to look back at Kings and Chronicles, you'd find that the days of these kings were days of great prosperity and freedom for Israel. Assyria was the big country to the north that threatened Israel, but Assyria was going through a number of internal conflicts, and so they had stopped demanding and taking tribute, and there was freedom in Israel. Israel, we find, uh, completed building projects during this period. Cities were, were built up. The borders of Israel were actually expanded as they had some military success. And we find out from other prophets at this time that there was great economic prosperity and growth in Israel. These were good days. But in the midst of this material blessing, Israel's hearts were captivated by things and opportunities and gods who seemed to be working for them. After all, look at all the success our nation is having right now. But Israel, even, even though they did continue to offer sacrifices at the temple and, and pray at times to God in their hearts, the people of Israel had abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God commands Hosea. He commands Hosea as he's married to this wife of Hordom, and as he begins to, to have children, he commands him to name each of his children names that will indicate the punishments and the consequences that are coming on Israel for their sin. Look at the three names that these children are given. First, verses 3 and 4, we're told that Gomer conceives and she bears Hosea a son. And God says, name this son Jezreel. And God gives two reasons why this first child should be named Jezreel. Jezreel is a place, it's a valley in Israel. And we find out first that Jezreel was the place where Jehu... Jehu was Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam is on the throne right now when Hosea is speaking. Jeroboam's great-grandfather, Jehu. And if you were to turn your mind back to the kings of Israel, you may remember a particularly wicked king by the name of Ahab. Ahab uh, features in a number of stories. And Jehu, Jehu 
slaughtered all of the descendants of Ahab. Seventy descendants of Ahab were killed in the valley of Jezreel by Jehu. And this was part of the way that God punished Ahab for his wickedness. But there was a problem because Jehu was not acting in in pure holiness to the Lord. God came to Jehu and said, you slaughtered all of the descendants of Ahab, but you did it in self-interested, bloodthirsty rage. And as a result, you are going to be punished. In the fourth generation, in the fourth generation, your family will be wiped off the throne and killed. Well, Jeroboam here is the third generation, and it's his son, his son who's going to be killed, and their house will be ended just a few years later. So, first, this name gives an indication that God's promises of punishment are coming through, true on Israel's king. But secondly, we find out in verses 4 and 5 that it's not just the king of Israel, but this name is a warning for all Israel that God is going to put an end to the kingdom and the house of Israel. Jezreel is going to be the site of war as God brings in an invading army and breaks the bow of Israel and punishes the whole nation for their sin, their idolatry, and abandoning the God who had covenanted with them. Jezreel, this valley of punishment. Well, then we move to the second child. We're told that Gomer gives birth to a a daughter. We're not told, for sure, that this is Hosea's daughter. She gives birth to a daughter, and, and God says, name her No Mercy. Now, if a name indicating punishment, defeat and war, and captivity is devastating, a name that indicates that you have lost the mercy and compassion of God is even worse. And here, God tells Israel that he is no longer going to forgive or overlook their sin. Now, at first read, this might seem problematic. Doesn't God proclaim that his mercy is is steadfast forever? Isn't, Isn't this the God who in Deuteronomy had said that his mercy continues to a thousand generations of his people? So why, what's happening when God proclaims that he is not going to have mercy? I think we need to understand two things here. First, we need to understand that this is not a statement of a change in God's character. It is a statement of how God is going to respond to sin in this particular context. Remember that God's prophetic word is coming in a historical context here. And this generation of Israel is no longer going to receive mercy. Because they have abandoned their covenant with God and have rebelled against Him. He is not going to protect them, but He is going to hand them over to the consequences of their sin. This also helps us understand what God means when he says that he is not going to have mercy on Israel, but he will have mercy on the house of Judah. As many of you may be thinking, well, Judah was taken captive too, so how much mercy did they really get? But this is a prophecy about a specific time. And if you think about your biblical history, you'll remember that when Assyria comes down on Israel and Judah, just a few years after this prophecy, Israel is completely destroyed. There is no mercy. They are taken captive. Judah, on the other hand, is saved. Hezekiah, by this time, is the king of Judah, and he prays to the Lord for salvation, and God saves Judah. Now, you'll note it says that he's not going to save them by bow or sword or war or horses, and and if you remember your biblical history, you'll remember that God comes, the angel of the Lord comes at night and wipes out, miraculously, the army of Sennacherib. So God has mercy and saves Judah. So first, we need to remember that this is a prophecy about a specific historical context. But second, 
We need to remember that God's refusal to show mercy to Israel in this situation is actually part of his sovereign love for his people. If you were to flip over to to Hosea 2 and read in Hosea 2, you would find out that that God says in Hosea 2 that he's going to begin to hedge Israel's way with thorns. He's going to build a wall against them. And God is going to start making it evident that all these other people and gods they're worshiping are not working for them. And he's going to bring a devastation on them to show them the futility of their, of their worship and their idols. But God says in chapter 2, he says, this is why I'm going to do this. I am going to do this so that Israel will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than it is now. You see, the Lord's anger and just punishment that he brings on Israel are not against his character. They are right in line with his long-term pursuit of Israel's heart. Of course, this doesn't take away Israel's punishment that's staring them in the face right now. We move on to the third child then. And if no mercy is bad, we get the darkest name of all with the third child. Where God says to Israel, you are no longer my people and I am. Am no longer your God. Again, this statement can be puzzling. It seems to undo all sorts of promises that God has made throughout the Old Testament. You'll remember God's promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David that, that He will be their God and, and the God of their people and that, and, and that this will be a steadfast covenant with them. So, what does God mean when He says, You are no longer my people? Well, again, we want to read this not as an absolute statement for all time, but a statement of fact about a generation of Israel that had abandoned God, had left him, and no longer treated him as their God. I think the analogy of this child born to Hosea is perhaps helpful here. We're not told that this second and third child are born to Hosea. It seems possible that that the second and third child here are part of these children of whoredom that God had promised to Hosea. And you could imagine Hosea looking at this child and saying, There's a statement of fact. You were born of another man. You are not my son. And when God looks down on Israel, who has left him, rejected him, abandoned him, and gone after other gods, God says, you are not my people. And I am not your God. I think perhaps the best way to think of this is to say that a breach has come in this relationship, in this covenant between God and his people because of the sin and disobedience of Israel. And in order for that to be restored... There needs to be a renewal of the covenant relationship between God and His people. And as we'll find out later, there is a chance of this renewal happening. But for this generation of Israel, God is not their God, and they are not His people. And so God declares the true state of things in Israel in Hosea's day. In their sin, they have abandoned their God, and He will punish them. He will not treat them with mercy, and He is no longer their God. But it's here. Just when God's accurate description of the situation is darkest, that God reverses course in verse 10 and breaks in with the second part of our passage this morning. If you look at verse 10, you'll see that just when God has finished painting the picture of Israel's unfaithfulness, God declares that even to this sinful and adulterous people, He will again be faithful. Israel's sin and covenant breaking are not final. Because God's promise and God's faithfulness to Abraham and to David 
to His own word and promise cannot be broken. In fact, if you look at verse 10, you'll see that God actually takes words from His promise to Abraham and giving this this new promise to Hosea. You'll remember God promising to Abraham that His descendants would be like sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And here in verse 10, God gives this promise again that Israel will again be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And God says that this people who right now are called not my people will once again be gathered and shall be called children of the living God. In Jezreel, this valley, verse, verse 11, Jezreel, this valley that's going to be a site of devastation and defeat and captivity will once again be a place where Israel and Judah are gathered together and God will establish them in the land. In other words, in 10 and 11, The Lord is describing what He will do to honor His covenant with His people in the future. But I want us to see in the book of Hosea here that that God is adding a new level to our understanding of God's promise. That we must see if we're going to understand who this God is who comes to save us. I think there's a temptation when we look at the the history of God working with His people to see, to see or to think of God as sort of this dispassionate, sovereign God who just sort of calmly works everything out. And because he knows the end and the beginning, he's, he's not really maybe emotionally devastated at any point because he knows what he's doing. And I, as I was thinking of a scenario here, and I was thinking of a set of parents who, who might say to their children who had eaten all of their dinner, no, I'm sorry, you can't have any candy for dessert. You know, there's devastation in the household. But then the parent follows up by saying, because I'm taking you to Sweet Frog for ice cream. You know, as a parent, I'm not devastated through that process because I know what I'm doing. And I think we think of God as sort of just this calm, above emotion. He knows what he's doing. But, but here in Hosea, we find a sovereign God, yes, but a God that is deeply and emotionally involved with his people through their sin and disobedience. And God uses Hosea to help us understand God's perspective and God's heart through this process. I want you to turn your page over to Hosea 2 and, and scan your eyes down verses 13 through 20 of Hosea 2. I'm not going to read the whole passage here. But in verse 13, God summarizes the situation as it is right now with Israel. He says, I'm going to punish Israel for her feast days to the bales and her burnt offerings, for she has forgotten me and gone after other lovers. That's the situation. But then look starting in verse 14 and start to look at the words and the language that God uses for how He comes to this sinful people. He says, Therefore, behold, I am going to allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I'm going to bring, give her vineyards and, and bring her to the valley of Achor, a door of hope for her. And as we move down into 16 through 20, we hear the Lord saying, I'm going to re-betroth her to Myself to betroth her to myself in righteousness and mercy and faithfulness in love. See, this is a picture not of a sovereign, all-powerful God just going out and making people His again because He wants to, but a sovereign, all-powerful, all-loving God who's pursuing His sinful people out of a deep longing for them, who's wooing them back to his, Himself. And I want us to hear the heart of God in this process. Perhaps there's no passage that expresses God's heart more than in Hosea 11. And if you were to flip over to Hosea 11, again in verse 7, we get a statement of the situation. 
Hosea 11.7 says, My people are bent on turning away from me. They are bent on rejecting me. And therefore, though they call out to me, I will not raise them up at all. This is the statement of the situation. But then look at the heart of God in verses 8 and 9, where God cries out, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? And he goes down later in 8, My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Do you hear the heart of this God? This God who loves and pursues and woos and lures his adulterous people back to himself so that he can re-betroth them to him? In a loving marriage covenant relationship? This is God's heart. And in Hosea, we see the story play out in a way that helps us understand the depths to which God is willing to go to redeem his sinful people. In chapter 3 of Hosea, we find out that not only is Gomer, his wife, unfaithful to him, but in chapter 3, she actually leaves Hosea completely. And she goes, it's hard to tell for sure, either to live with an adulterous man or to go into a brothel and live as a prostitute. And you imagine that maybe this felt really freeing for Hosea. All right, this woman has left me. I'm finally free from this obligation that God has given me. But God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, Gomer's leaving you is not an opportunity for your freedom. I want you to go get her. And because she's gone so far in her adultery, you're going to actually have to purchase her back, buy her back. And the price is more money than you have, so you're going to have to scrape all your money as well as food and other goods together to purchase her back. And when you do, Hosea, when you purchase her back, I want you to go to her and I want you to love her again. And to our 21st century ears, we're thinking, what? How do you just go to an adulterous spouse and just love them again? But God loves his runaway bride. And he asks Hosea to be a picture of his love. And so Hosea goes to the adulterer's house or to the brothel where Gomer is. He gathers all his money and his goods and buys her back. And he loves her again. And one commentator says, you know, if you think about this story, it's kind of like the prodigal son where the father welcomes back his runaway rebellious son. But this story is even more true to the love of God. Because in this story, the sinner doesn't get up out of the pigsty and run back to his father. In this story, the father, or here the husband, has to go into the pigsty and pull his beloved sinner out of the muck himself and bring her back to be his own. This is the love of God who has gone and gotten sinful people. And if you, if you just take a minute to think over the history of God's relationship with Israel, how God had rescued Israel, how God had forgiven them, had mercy on them, used wrath and punishment to draw them back to Him, how He's done this over and over through grumblings in the wilderness, through golden calves, through worship of Baals and Asterisks, through chasing help from Egypt and surrounding nations, through doubts and abandonment. This is a God who is not only faithful to His promises, but a God who is driven by a love that goes deeper than anything we have humanly experienced in order to restore the covenant relationship that He longs to have with His people. And He will bring it about because He is the sovereign God. Well, as we listen to God speak to Israel in this passage, 
I want to close just by mentioning two things that should be in our minds as we meditate on this passage this week. First, first, God speaks to Israel in this passage in order to warn them of their spiritual adultery and the very real consequences that are coming on them because of their sin. And Hosea 1 shines a floodlight on the true nature of our sin. See, sin is not just mistakes. Sin isn't just failing to meet a standard. Sin is a decision to turn away from our faithful God to chase other loves instead. And just like Israel, we live in a time of great prosperity and abundance. And just like Israel, you and I, this week, on a nearly daily basis, are going to face a host of other things that are going to lobby for our attention. We're going to face a host of things that are lobbying us to run to them for the comfort we want, or the happiness we want, or the fulfillment we want. We're going to face a host of things lobbying for our hearts that says, find your comfort, find your hope, find your joy in us. We can deliver. And God gives us this story to help us understand that sometimes it's precisely in participating in the cultural norms that seem so natural that we end up abandoning the God who has called us and committing spiritual adultery with hearts that have left him for other things. You know, multiple times in Hosea, God mentions the fact that the Israelites still offered sacrifice on his altars at times, and they still prayed to his name at times. But these acts were useless because their hearts had abandoned him, and their sin had broken their relationship with him. And for those of us who sit in the pews or stand in the pulpits, I pray that none of us would assume that just because we go through the forms of worship or because we've grown up in the church, that our relationship with God is just fine. For when we willfully continue in sin or are casually blind to our broken relationship with God, I pray that we would repent and return to God before He has to hedge our way with thorns or set a wall against us or expose the nakedness of our adultery, as Hosea says. You, like me, I'm sure, have heard people say, well, you know, my sin, it's not really a big deal because I know God will forgive me. Or, God died to forgive this, so I can go ahead and sin and this won't jeopardize my relationship with him. But are we willing to see the heart behind these statements? Are we willing to see that our heart here is chasing other loves? Our heart has become like Hosea's wife, Gomer, happy to have a marriage to fall back on for security, but having no real interest in our husband. Now, taken alone, sometimes good theology about God's grace and forgiveness can lead to bad theology about the nature of sin and the call to love God rather than to covet the pleasures we put in his place. Secondly, this passage passage shows us the strength of God's love. God promised sinful Israel that those who had not received mercy and were not his people will one day again receive his mercy and be called his people. God promises a great reversal to to his work. But Paul takes these verses here in Hosea. Paul takes these and applies this truth at a level that Hosea probably never could have imagined. For Paul says that because of Christ, you and I, who are Gentile sinners, who had no right to expect mercy, who had no, no place in the people of God, if we come to God through Christ Jesus... We now can receive mercy. We now can be part 
of the, e- of the people of the eternal of God. In Christ, you and I can receive the blessings of this promise, that those who had not received mercy will receive mercy, and those who are not my people will be my people. Surely even Hosea, who bought back Gomer, was amazed when he saw the way that God fulfilled this prophecy, sending his own son to pay the price of his own blood in order to bring sinners to himself. This is a love so deep and so great that Paul actually prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that you and I would be strengthened by his spirit so that we might just be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God in Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you hear that? God's love is so great, so surpassing in knowledge, we need the help of the Spirit of God just to begin to comprehend it. This passage gives hope. It gives hope to any who realize our sin and wonder if God would really take a sinner who has sinned as much as me back to himself. This passage gives comfort to anyone who is lonely, who feels betrayed or abandoned by people now, and who wonder, is there really any chance of love or acceptance, or intimate relationship for me? And the answer to both is yes, because of God's steadfast love. With the seriousness of sin, we have the love of God. These two meet in the person of Jesus Christ. Through faith, leaning on Christ, the love of God shatters the power and consequences of sin and grasps His people secure in his arms again. Will you come to him? Will you find your hope and your strength and your joy in him this week? Let's pray. Father, you are a God whose love is beyond anything we could ask or imagine. You are a God who has come and given us this picture through Hosea of what it is like for you to love a sinful people. But then you have come in Jesus Christ to show your willingness to do so at the price of your blood. Purchase this people to be your own. We thank you and praise you, O God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.